0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. So we've been in a series entitled Signs, and today's um, title is Signs of Worship, but the title of it's going to change again by the time we're done at the end here. Um, The song you sang earlier, is it was written by a guy named Matt Redmond. Some of you may have heard of him before. Um, some of you probably know the story that's behind this. There was a point in time when uh, he was a, a worship leader in England when the, um, the worship had just become more of a thing in the sense of the musicianship and uh, people's engagement with it than really honoring God. There's... Two types of worship that have been talked about in one time or another. One is where it's very shallow, very artificial, and it's rarely reflective. Little attention is given to worshiping with the mind. It's all about the emotion. It's all about the passion. It's all about the rifts and, and all the things that drive that. Um, some people become worship junkies. They start going to church to church to find out what has the most stimulating musical presentations that can wire them up. This was very much my background growing up in Pentecostal circles, where we emphasized more that passion than we did the understanding that was behind it. Some have referred to this as scarecrow worship. Uh, it'd be better if it only had a brain. <laughs> on the other hand, there are those churches that focus very much on the cognitive. They'll recite great creeds, distribute a whole lot of exegetical material. Um, there will be very thoughtful prayers offered uh, but the heart and the soul aren't caught up with the wonder, um, the passion that characterizes those in scripture who, who fall on their faces when they encounter God. No one's ever so moved. It's been said that they actually move in the process. This is a little bit tragic. Dallas Willard, a writer, says um, to handle the things of God without worship is always to falsify them. And so individuals who are, who are in this cognitive process may have a lot of understanding. They may be not prone to theological error, but the worship is very dry. It doesn't connect with the deepest hurts and desires. It doesn't generate awe or a sense of brokenness. This has been referred to as tin man worship, if it only had a heart. Sometimes we combine the worst parts of both of those. (laughs) We have neither understanding nor passion. We've talked in the past here about having an understood passion for God. That there should be expressions um, of, of, of worship that go beyond just a singing of a song. That there's an understanding that comes behind it. We've teased and said that if if Presbyterians have been known in in that Scottish tradition of of deep thought and intellectual, but very little passion, and Pentecostals very passionate and expressive, without sometimes the deep reflective thing, that we prefer to be Presbycostal if we can, to try to take the best of each both of those worlds and put them together. <coughs> Matt Redman was um, in a church such as this when the musicians became more of a focal point, people sitting here saying, oh, I'm, I, I like that worship leader or that worship leader or, or this song or that song, and they were caught more with what was being presented. And I've addressed this a little bit too because our culture as, an, as a country gears this way. And so oftentimes the church has become a reflection of the culture in this sense That it's more about presentation and what appears, in which case we're gonna make sure that we have 20-somethings only on a platform who can wear skinny jeans. That we're gonna make sure that that there's nobody that, that happens to not reflect in a good fashion. We only have our best and our brightest and the most excellent presentation there. And we've lifted up, as I said, as a result, some worship leaders and, and younger pastors who are in their 20s or 30s who really don't have a full understanding yet of some of the things. Or what their understanding is is more reflective of culture than it is of a study of the word. Now, having said that, the author of the song that we just sang was 25. He was a 20 something. So this isn't to say that it's strictly a generational thing, it's to say, are we seeking God or a reflection of the culture around us? For those of you searching for a church, when you're searching for a church, is it simply a shallow expression of what's happening on the platform, whether it's the speaker themselves or or the singers themselves? Is it simply a reflection of the culture around that that has that American best and brightest and cleverest and cutest thing that's up there? Or is there something deeper that you can sense in the spirit taking place? Or maybe you are attending a church where, where that deeper thing is happening, but you're not sensing it because you're not approaching it with a heart of worship. Matt redmond twenty five years old the, the pastor basically has said that look we 're going to just stop what we 're doing here." He said that he felt that they lost their way, and so he told people the next few weeks at church when you arrive there 's not going to be a sound system or a band it 's just going to be with, us with our hearts and our voices and our bibles and It was out of this experience that Matt wrote this. He said, literally, the song is literally saying what happened. When the music fades, all stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's a worth that will bless your heart. He said, that's just a reflection of it. But what happens if you strip away everything? Do we still show up? Do we still find a level of engagement? Is there something wrong with having? There's nothing wrong with those items. It's a matter of how we engage them. We were recently involved with some student ministries that have been very engaged in the high schools. And as we were having conversations with them, um, one of their features is that at lunchtime they'll gather the, the, those together and they'll have pizza available. And then they all also have a message, and they have other things that are part of it. And you know it was really interesting because a couple hundred kids would show up for this on a student campus. But one of the teachers said to us at one point on the side, "said Take away the pizza and let's see what happens. Would the kids still show up? Would there still be a, an engagement if the pizza wasn't present?" So as much as I can be critical about what happens on a platform in a church and what's presented, the thing I'd want to put to you today is would you show up if there was no pizza? What if we didn't have anything happening other than just gathering with the Bible and just having a time of conversation or reading or meditation or prayer? Now I'm not advocating that because I think there's something about music. I think there's something about all these other features that are important. But if we become dependent upon them, for our worship in the sense that they are now expressing our worship and we're just kind of receiving that passively. That is not worship as a congregation. And my roots would say, can I get an amen on that? (laughs) We're able to respond and engage, not in a way that's distracting, but, but it's supposed to be a level of engagement. A couple of things I want to throw at you real quickly. First of all, I want to suggest to you that atheism, when we've talked about for worship um, is going to happen no matter what. Atheism is impossible. You worship something. Everyone lives for something. Jesus argues that if it's not uh, um, him, then it's going to be something else still. There was a writer, uh, David Foster Wallace, brilliant writer, uh, committed suicide. But he gave a very famous commencement address in which he said this, Uh, to a graduating class. He said this, this this guy who actually kind of got dark. Because here's something else that's true, he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choices we get get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on and so on. So the reality is we're going to worship no matter what. How do we worship? What motivates our worship? Do we worship God out of out of a sense of duty or delight? In our area here, um, a lot of uh, Eastern European and other influences that have been here, and I've come across a few situations where uh, marriages have been arranged, whether it's been Eastern European or, or uh, um, uh, Indian or, or other things of that type or another. And there was a commercial that was on years back, I think, where a young man had committed to such a a marriage, sight unseen. Uh, And he's going to the airport with his flowers to meet his bride, but he's really not very happy about this. He's been Americanized enough to know that he has his own desires and passions, and he's never met this woman before. And so there's a a sense of, of gloom going forward until he sees her get off the plane, and she is the most curvaceous, beautiful babe that ever walked, evidently. And suddenly his whole attitude changes. As he gets to engage her in conversation, as he gets to go past the serving, gets to know who she is, suddenly he realizes that he has in fact scored a very good deal and is marrying above his level. In the same way, when we approach God, do we approach it without an awareness or just a sense of duty? We show up because that's what we're supposed to do and, and we walk through this as some kind of semi-moral beings? Or do you know who it is that you worship? The young man, upon engaging the woman and going past the surface beauty, finds her to be a delightful person. And they marry and they become one, and there's something fantastic that develops out of that. Do you worship out of a sense of duty, or do you worship out of a sense of delight? Do you worship out of a sense of just having to do those things, or do you know who it is that you worship? Do you understand that you're not just worshiping your best buddy, but you're worshiping God? whole nations tremble and fall down before? Ralph Waldo Waldo Emerson tossed out another thought in regards to this. He says, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. In other words, our deities shape our identities, he says. It's been referred to sometimes as Emerson's Law. So whatever it is that you focus and, and make the center point of your life shapes who you are. Uh, um, Charles Darwin, Darwin, you guys have all heard of me, he wrote in his autobiography, quote, my chief enjoyment and sole employment through life has been scientific work. He adds, I'm never idle, um, as it is, quote, the only thing which makes life endurable to me. And what did the effect of all this scientific study on Darwin have? Uh, Up to the age of 30, he says, poetry gave me great pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I find it so intolerably dull that it nauseates me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collection of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness, he writes. I became, quote, a withered leaf for every subject except science which he writes and says he saw as a great evil, quote-unquote. A withered leaf. Now consider a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who was an influential pastor of a century or so ago. At age 19, Edwards wrote this, quote, resolved to cast my soul in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and consecrate myself wholly to him. Later in his life, um, Edwards reflected on how this object of worship Uh, had affected his soul over the years and he wrote this quote it brought an inexpressible purity brightness peacefulness and ravishment to the soul in other words it made the soul like a field or a garden Edward writes so you have two gifted men one becomes a withered leaf the other a garden and the object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very different kind of men these two became what is it that you're worshiping what is shaping you If we're truly knowing who God is, if we're truly engaging him, then increasingly we become more like him. So one of the questions I guess I'd ask to have you gauge on this scale is, are you more like Jesus in this year of 2020 than you were in 2019 or less or staying the same? It's an indicator of your understanding and of your worship. We look at things like offering, or we look at things like service that we do, or or other actions. But there's a passage of scripture that you need to have drilled into today. And so I want you to, to look at this passage. It's Hosea, a prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 6. And in this, God is saying, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgment of God or knowledge of God rather than, than burnt offerings. Why is this passage important? One is it's, it's really telling what God wants. I mean, if you're engaged with anybody, do you, one of the most difficult things is knowing what do they want. You know, what, what, is the, what are the needs? How can I express my affection in a way that will have impact and that will have meaning? Ladies, we, we agonize over this at Valentine's Day for those of us that are caught up with the drudgery and slavery that is hallmark holidays. Okay, you know when birthdays come along or something else, what, what does a person want? What will what will do that thing? And it's, and the best gift is that that is rooted in the knowledge of the person. I learned a long time ago, giving my wife Black and Decker things doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't ring the bell. Doesn't make a mark. And so I've cheated over the years in this way. When we're out somewhere and traveling somewhere, and I notice that she observes something, I will get that item when she doesn't know that I'm getting that item. And then I hold on to it, sometimes for a year. Sometimes just long enough so that she has no awareness that could possibly be in existence. I'm good for the next two years right now. <laughs> okay? And that way, I don't have to run, especially because Christmas time I tend a little bit crazy, anyways, and so this helps me out in that sense. Years ago, my oldest son, who is an artistry in music, we gave him a, a, a really nice guitar years ago. In fact, interestingly enough, and let me let me back this up. We were actually in England listening to Matt Redman in a worship conference they were at. Jake and my son Tal and I. And Matt shared a song that we're gonna sing a little bit later. And it was brand new at that time. It may have been the first time it had been presented for all I know. It's the first time I had ever heard it. And it was in that setting that um, I came across this guitar that was there that was being offered um, by an Irish salesman and I purchased it for, for my son, it, it's become a treasured possession. I knew it would be something because I knew him that it would be that way. That's not why I'm telling you the story. This last Christmas, we haven't done a whole lot of major gifts anymore. We've, we've instead said we're going to spend time together, and so we've tried to take a week together someplace. And that's supposed to be um, the cost. Okay, so we save that way. But we try to get something small, at least occasionally for somebody. Some notion, some indicator. But Tal had an interesting idea. And the moment he said it, it caught me. I I don't know if this will translate across. My younger son Paxton plays uh, keyboard and guitar a little bit as well. That's not his identity in the same fashion but it's still something that he enjoys. And he had actually taken my old guitar, my first guitar, an old Yamaha, up with him to school. He let me know he took it later. (laughs) But at least it wasn't my really nice ovation, okay? That was a $3,000 guitar. This one's like $200, $100 from way back. Beat up is all get out. I'd actually carved a a name for it inside it one time. It's bad. But tell knew Paxton enough to know and so there was a guitar made of a certain wood that would have particular meaning because of some history. And this past Christmas at Tell's direction, we purchased this and gave this to Paxton. Completely destroyed him. Totally destroyed him. Tal's knowledge of Paxton in guiding me in the giving of that gift was rooted in the understanding he had of him. And as a result, that gift had profound meaning and put a marker on that Christmas. The degree to which we offer worship, the degree to which we offer the gifts that we bring need to be rooted in the knowledge of who we're giving it to. The beginning of your worship has to begin with an understanding of who God is. Do you understand this? Do you hear this? Your worship begins with an understanding of the object of your worship. This is why it's important for us to look at Hosea chapter six, verse six, when it says, and God's saying what he desires. You men are stupid If your wife comes to you and says, this is what I want, and you ignore that come holiday time, you deserve everything you get, or actually don't get from that point on. So when God comes to us and says, I desire mercy, think about that. I desire mercy, not your sacrifices, not those ritual things that were offered up, Before, and it doesn't say instead of, but before tithes and offerings, before acts of service, before any of these other things he's saying, not to say they shouldn't happen, but he's saying, I desire mercy before any of that. And then he says, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, how we interact with each other matters to him. Am I the only one that finds human beings annoying and irritating? It would be so much fun in life if there weren't other people around. But their engagement shapes us in who we are and how we are up close. And and probably nothing else like marriage does that because the, the closeness of that sharpens or shapes or cuts you more deeply than anything else. Hosea says, says this, and Jesus repeats it twice in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, rather, but sinners. He had sat down with Matthew. Matthew had just accepted Christ, and, and Matthew's a tax collector. And so he goes over to Matthew's house for a party with all his tax collector friends. And the Pharisees challenge that and say, What are you doing hanging out with these sinners out there and stuff? And his response He says, Go and learn. Hosea, you read the scripture. Did you not read this passage about mercy over sacrifice? For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You're, you're killing these people off with your distaste, and you're, you're shoving them away instead of engaging them. Now, sometimes we shouldn't engage if we share the same weakness. So for those of us who are in the process of coming out of certain relationships, that, that, that may be a good reason to preserve. But to write off entire groupings of people, he's saying No. And he quotes this passage. Later, Jesus is walking with his uh, disciples, and they're going through a wheat field. And as they're going along, the guys are hungry, and so they break off some of the, the heads of wheat just to have a little bit of granola, a little snack, okay, along the way. And again, they condemn the apostles and, the, and all for doing this as a way of shooting at Jesus, and he quotes again in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. If you'd known what these words mean, I guess they didn't get it three chapters before. He's repeating it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. They're saying, look, at, your guys are illegal because it's Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. You're not supposed to do any work, and they are harvesting the grain. Okay, there's a difference between snapping a few things off because you're hungry and harvesting the grain. Does everyone understand that? Okay, big difference. And so Jesus challenges them. Now, this is twice within three chapters to relatively the same type or grouping of people that he's repeating to them, Hosea chapter six, verse six. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Later in chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law, and not all of them are bad guys, he hears them debating, and noting that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asks them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And he says, the most important one, Jesus says is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is referred to the Shema Israel in, in, in the Hebrew and all, and it's quoted and referenced at every gathering of worship in, in Hebrew literature or, or synagogue or anything of this nature. Hear, O God, hear, O, God, uh, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord Lord is one. And then to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Not instead of but he says, it's more important then. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This teacher and the ones that we condemn so often, this one, he recognized truth in what Jesus was saying. And there was something that stirred in his own heart and mind. And he identifies with this. So, you have at least three situations that Jesus is encountering teachers, people who know and understand the scripture. Twice, he has to correct them and say, Don't you know the prophet Hosea and what God says? The third time, he encounters somebody who has a deeper understanding. And this person, he validates, this person, he encourages because he's grasped something. Beyond just the knowledge, he has some kind of a relationship with God. And Jesus says that you're not far from the kingdom of God. How far are you from the kingdom of God? Do you just worship blindly without understanding? Or do you maybe have understanding, but you hold back any passionate expression of any kind? Or do you have neither? And you're here out of duty without any knowledge or understanding whatsoever. And I don't say that to condemn you. I say that with a sense of of compassion and sadness for you. This passage of Hosea, it comes back, obviously, to the writer himself. Hosea is a guy who understood a lot about the law and a lot about um, passion and everything else. He was required to marry uh, a woman by God's direction who had a sexual addiction, amongst other things. So three times she runs away from him. The third time, it appears that she actually sells herself into some type of sexual slavery of some type or another. He has to actually go and redeem her. He has to pay a certain amount, way beyond his means, to bring her back into the household. Now, this is really extraordinary, considering the fact that under the law and under the rules, um, she should have been executed or stoned after the first departure. Instead, he pursues her and brings her back. Then the third time, he actually pays to get her back. And God's purpose in doing that was to have some sense of an understanding of, of how he loves us and cares for us. That yes, there are rules, there are ramifications for our actions, there is fallout from what we do. But he desires to go past that to redeem us and to draw us in the same way as Hosea did for this woman. So when Hosea is sitting here and writing that God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, and he's dealing with his own relationship with his own spouse, his own wayward spouse, there's a sharpness to what is happening here. And he was trying to relate to Israel itself, because the picture that's painted in Hosea of Israel is one of a nation that is truly in decay. It's a very dark picture. He says that their godliness was basically an empty form, a hollow shell, and in place of lasting inner character, they had substituted this this outward actions. In Hosea chapter six, verse four, He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah, locations in Israel? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It doesn't stay. It just just fades. It's just insubstantial. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus talks about Isaiah's prophecy and said he was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They will sing songs, but there's no heart-to-heart connection. The prophet Joel speaks into the moment in, in the second chapter in thirteen 13th verse, and he says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. In other words, instead of tearing your garments and trying to show that you're broken, he's saying, rend your heart. Offer that up. David Speaks in Psalm 51, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. More and more, I'm increasingly drawn to those individuals that would be identified as broken. And by broken, I don't mean necessarily dysfunctional. I mean people that, that the first thing when we encounter God is a sense of brokenness. If you encounter everything that is pure and righteous and holy in the universe and you realize you're not, when you encounter that, it breaks you. It's Isaiah encountering God and saying, Woe unto me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and from a people of unclean lips. I can't even stand in your presence. This is why whenever God shows up, people fall over or, or fall to the ground or are struck on. If we encounter God, He's not just your cuddly little koala bear, He's God. And so the first true thing of encountering him is a sense of brokenness, of being shattered. And out of that shatteredness, we are reformed. We are reshaped in his image as we continue to draw close to him and worship and engage him. I said the name of this communication needs to change. This is not signs of worship. It should be entitled signs of affection. That's what worship is. Do you have those signs of affection in your life? Another term for worship means literally to kiss the face of God. I'm not going to model that out here with one of you. For, for You should be relieved over that. But think of what that's saying. Think of what's what that saying. That worship isn't some distant kind of intellectual exercise nor is it just dancing and prancing and yelling and screaming, that it means to come close. That it means to become intimate. To look into the eyes of God, to engage, to come that close enough that we can smell his breath, that he can smell ours. That's enough to both terrify us and to bring us joy as we realize that we're accepted by this incredible being. The Jews had different ways of worshiping. If there's a, In a couple of weeks, we're going to be taking uh, 41 people to Israel. And those of you that are going to be going, you may see this on the plane, on the final leg into uh, Tel Aviv. You might see someone that'll get up, and they will pull a book down from up top, and, and they will put on a robe of some type, and, and they'll have uh, uh, leather things that they'll strap onto their arms or strap onto their forehead, and they'll begin to pray and they'll walk the aisles of the plane doing this. And in the leather boxes are scriptures, and it goes back to a book of, notes in Deuteronomy that says when you worship, basically to, to keep these scriptures or these things ever before you, one of them is a Shema Israel, Lord our God is one. And they'll have little boxes here on their forehead, so they'll constantly be remembering it. And they'll be praying and walking the aisles. And they'll do this several times during the flight if it's a long flight, because they worship God all the time you may see somebody who's sitting in their uh, seat and they'll be reading their scripture or they'll be in prayer. And as they're praying, they'll be going like this the entire time. There's a phrase that says that that, that the candlestick of God is the soul of man. And this type of style of, of, of worship in Jewish circles is referred to as davening. Now we actually have a keyboard player occasionally named Davin, nothing to do with him, okay? But davening is this type of of trying to emulate the flicker of a flame on a candle. That my life is a light and an action before God. Worship is not just about singing a song. It's not just about about, um, giving an offering or doing an act of service. It has to do with our posture and our, our attitude and our knowledge and our understanding and our relationship. It all flows out of that. It's not a duty that has to be done. It's a desire. For some of us, that means that we raise our hands and worship. We're open and free before God. We don't care what anybody's thinking about. We're open and free in receiving of God. Some of us are, are that way, but we're just a little bit more low-key, and that's okay, too. It can mean, as it does in Scripture, where, where people are moved physically, in other cases where they're down on their knees or where they literally lay prostrate before the face of God. It's more than a song. That 25-year-old kid was right. It's more than a song. It has a far deeper reason and meaning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. My sacrifice... David says, is a broken spirit and contrite heart. That you're not going to despise. Micah, another prophet of the Old Testament, says, what is it that you want of us, God? I just want to know you. What is it you want? How can I please you? I offer sacrifices all day long. I do acts of service. I I give my tithes and my offerings. I sing songs. I do all, what do you want? And he tells us in Micah chapter six, he says, with what shall I come to you, Lord, and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? What do you think, Tom? No, Okay. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, O oh woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. another passage of scripture that talks about and this will be the last thing I'll say to you it's found in Philippians 3.19 it says their destiny is destruction their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame their mind is set on earthly things another translation says they're headed for destruction people who are not followers of God their God is their appetite they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. The writers in time past would have talked about bellies and chests. And when they talked about bellies, they would have been referring to that passage. People who, their appetites, their needs, their desires, their passions, that's what drives them, and that's what moves them. A lot of the um, current worship styles increasingly are feeding more to a concert level, more than just focusing attention upon God. And so our songwriters, our preachers, have become celebrities. They are people to be followed instead of following God. And so we become people whose God is our belly and we translate that even into our worship styles. Chests were something else. Chests were where um, honor, dignity, thoughtfulness arose from in the ancient world. And so when this writer in Philippians is saying they become, you know, their bellies are their God. It means their appetites, their pursuits. And when we translate that even into church, where those things become what motivate us and move us because they feed our passions, our desires, our needs, then our chests fall away and we become just people of our bellies. But if we can step back, if we can realize how much our local American culture has tainted how we approach even church and God, if we can strip everything back for a minute and just see God, not as a duty but as a desire, as we, as we encounter him and as we're broken by that, as we're reshaped and lifted up and drawn back into his arms in love and grace, it changes us. And such mercy, such kindness, means that we have to extend that to others, and it has to be done with a humility and a simplicity. It was a twenty-five-year-old kid, under the direction of an older pastor, but still his passion, that, that that wrote that song we sang earlier. It's not a generational thing; it's a heart thing. What is your relationship with God? Are you drawn to him? Do you understand? Do you know him? This morning, we're going to participate in communion. If you're a follower of, of, of Christ, you're welcome to join us. We just ask that you hold the cup and the bread, and we'll take of it together. But you don't have to be a member of this church. But if you're not a follower, let it pass you by. But that is, this is being distributed in a moment's time. As there's a time for reflection, I would encourage you, this is also Worship as you receive this. In the ancient style of the church, there would have been preparation for the word, which is what we've done. There would be the word being given, which is what we've done. There'd be reflection upon that word and then preparation for the table. Then there'd be the table and then there'd be reflection upon that. That would make up most of ancient worship. And we're following that pattern this morning. And there's a song that's gonna be sung while this is being done and it's a very, very old song. But it's, deep with good theology. So it's a good, thoughtful song. It stirs your thinking, and it should. And from that, we're going to move into uh, another type of worship that that I would hope would stir your passion and your, your heart as well, too. That somewhere in this process today, you would have an understood passion of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But if I were the Holy Spirit, and you can thank God that I'm not, I would be walking these aisles and these seats, and I'd be looking for signs of affection, signs of an understanding that that you become aware of the God you serve and what it is he desires of you and of me. And if somewhere in that process you find a stir of emotion and a brokenness, there's nothing wrong with that. or if there's a sudden click in your mind of understanding. Father, I see you as Father. I see you as friend and as God, holy and almighty. I see you in so many different ways, but but the way that even Jesus referenced the Godhead most was Father. And I find a brokenness because I know that I've not achieved everything that you would want me to achieve in the way that you wanted me to achieve it. But I do know that you love me and that you care for me and I am in awe of your holiness, of your truth, of your goodness. And while you break me, you do not ever leave me there. But you gather all the broken pieces together and you shape something more beautiful out of it than what it is I brought to you. So today, for me, I bring my brokenness to you. I offer it up as worship before you, as a recognition of my own inability to shape those things for eternity in the way that you can shape them. And as each one across this gathering today offers up to you an act of worship out of their heart and out of their mind, I pray that you would meet us here in Jesus' name. The song we sang, um, the Redmond song, 10,000 Reasons, one little interesting note on that. Evidently, there were um, some prisoners, I think it was in Bali, somewhere in the Far East there, that had come to Christ, even though they'd done some horrific issues, I guess. They come to Christ, and they... they, um, Their lives are changed, and they begin actually to change the lives of others that were in the prison as well, too. I mean, they were broken by their encounter by God, but they're changed and transformed by it, too. Despite the fact that they had such a huge positive influence on the prison population, um, the authorities deemed that they still need to be executed for their crimes. So this group of men were brought out to evidently a firing squad of some type or another. And as they're about to be shot, they were singing 10,000 Reasons Why. We don't worship God in just the good times. We worship him always. It's not contingent upon our circumstances. It's based on who he is. Father, I thank you for your grace and your provision. I thank you, Lord, that we're not just broken, but we're reformed and reshaped. Lord, I know you move amongst us looking for signs of affection. I pray that you'd find it in us, Lord. As we come to move past duty to an understanding of who you are, that it would change how we are. And that we would do justice. That we would love mercy and kindness and extend that to people around us. And that we'd walk humbly with you, Lord. Guide us in these things, we pray. Let they be true in us. In your name we pray, amen.